And welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan. Thank you so much for joining us here on the program. Ordinarily, I would sit here and I would give you all the particulars. I'm going to do that later because I want to jump right into our program and our interview uh, with a very special guest here on the program. Uh, yes, indeed, he has written some books, but uh, I didn't know that when I scheduled him, and that's just fine because the conversation that he and I had following another program he was on was very, very interesting, and I'm very excited to have Tom uh, Krattenmaker on my program to join us. He is uh, uh, the... Uh, what I find interesting is he has uh, a lot of hats that he wears. One of them, of course, is a contributing columnist to USA Today. He does have a website by the same name of, not USA Today, but of Tom uh, Krattenmaker. And uh, first of all, thank you so much for joining us here on the program. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. I think we're going to have a lot of fun with this program because That'd you be are also connected with uh, the communications uh, over at Yale School of Divinity, which is what really struck me in, a, in terms of a, a conversation you were having with another gentleman. <clears throat> and I always uh, have to say that I love conversations regarding uh, sometimes it's doctrine and dogma, more along the lines of philosophy. I like to refer to the different what people would say are religions as philosophies, because in mm. a way that's really what they are, isn't it? Well, there's certainly a very close relationship between philosophy and religion and theology. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, first of all, tell me about your role at Yale School of Divinity. I'm communications director. And what does that mean? So what I, do you do? I head up efforts to uh, promote <laughs> the school to the public, to alumni, help with uh, communications with students and the rest of the uh, on-campus community, deal with media commission and write articles about what's happening at the school and social media, Twitter and Facebook. <laughs> so uh, uh, now I, I don't want to demean the title, mind you, but uh, PR director would not be appropriate. <laughs> I have no problem with that term, but that's not inaccurate with you here, Richard. They call me communications director. Well, we're going to keep I have been a PR director at other colleges and, you know, I have no problem with that yeah. term. Some might. Communications Director at Yale School of Divinity. Again, Tom Krattenmaker is my guest, and uh, TomKrattenmaker.com. I'll spell that out for you in just a moment. But I want to ask you about uh, uh, working there at uh, Yale School of Divinity. Uh, obviously, there's a, a, shall we say, a uh, religious undertone, or, or maybe it's not an undertone. <laughs> maybe even uh, something less subtle than that. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. For, uh, thanks for teeing up what is my standard disclaimer. People who are familiar with my work know that I'm generally a secular guy. Mm -hmm. And if they know anything about the history of Yale Divinity School and the present day reality of Yale Divinity School, they know it's a religious, actually a Christian divinity school, mm -hmm. a place that studies theology, but a place where faith is practiced. And so I always tell people, Richard, that my own location on the theological spectrum is in no way indicative of the identity of this school, which is and will remain a Christian divinity school. Now, you say you come at it from a, a secular perspective. Is that right? Not my job, no. Um, when you're a communications person, your agenda is not the agenda that you're pursuing when you're doing your work. My agenda when I'm at work is the Yale Divinity School agenda and uh, a religious one, a very thoughtful 
and well-informed religious one. But the uh, writing that I do in my other life, such as for USA Today and my books, that's where I represent myself and my own agenda. And that is more of a secular starting point and platform. Well, can I ask what your philosophical uh, underpinnings are? Uh, And when I say that, I'm also talking going back to... Uh, the days uh, shortly following your arrival to this planet uh, uh, through your parents and so forth, uh, in terms of how you were raised, how that has changed, and where you are today. I was raised nominally religious, nominally Catholic. Um, You would probably say that my family was going through the motions. Not my father. He was very serious about Catholicism, but the rest of us, not quite as serious Um, And so I didn't really appreciate or enjoy the church experience for the most part. But there was one aspect of it that really stuck and that's been with me my whole life. And that is my fascination with Jesus. I still remember these stories and songs about Jesus sort of inspiring me even when I was young and thinking there's really something beautiful about this and something that is important and probably transformative. I'm sure I wouldn't have had that language when I was a teenager. But even though I was a cynical teenager, there was something about Jesus that spoke to me. So as my life went on, Richard, I became less and less religious and gradually evolved into that category of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, religiously unaffiliated, secular. I don't consider myself an atheist. If you want to know where I am in those regards, you'd probably say agnostic and If people ask me about my religious identity, I often say that I'm a secular Jesus follower. I know that's not a real category. If you're being surveyed about religious identity, that's not one of the boxes you can check. There is no such thing officially or formally as a category of secular Jesus followers. Mm -hmm. But that's where I've ended up in my own religious and secular and spiritual journey. And I think there are many other people who are sort of in the same category, even though they don't name it that. And I've had conversations with those people. They would say, Tom, I really appreciate what you're saying with your book or this or that article you wrote. I guess that's me too. The person would go on to say that they're not really involved in church, but they've always appreciated the figure of Jesus. And they've tried to incorporate those teachings and that example into their lives. Now, what I find interesting, and I, I, I would have to say that even from my perspective, as one who considers himself, uh, I I use the term metaphysician because I like to deal in those things that are beyond the physical, because this is not all there is. At least my logical brain, which I believe, okay, uh, was God-given or creator-given or universal power-given— <clears throat> tells me that this makes no sense, that if this is all an accident, if this is, uh, uh, you know, we're here and then we're gone and then lights out, first of all, if it is lights out, I'm not going to know anyway. So it won't matter. Uh, but it just makes no sense that we go through all of the machinations that we do in our lifetimes uh, and the, 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 the learning and the experiences that we have, and then there's nothing else. Uh, and then, of course, you you then tie into that people who have had out-of-body or near-death experiences, those kinds of things. And I find it fascinating. But I will say this. I think that 
even from my perspective, I would take on the perspective of the agnostic metaphysician because I think it's the most honest position to take. Interesting. I mean, I, I can only say I believe and I can only speak of my experiences. I can't, I can't speak of your experiences and I have no right nor place to judge your experiences, to, to devalue them, to, to elevate them. They're your experiences and you are who you are because of them, right? Well, that's a very thoughtful perspective, which resonates with me. And it's the kind of perspective that really facilitates respectful religious coexistence and pluralism, which I think are really important and greatly needed in our country and the world. I'm a little more secular than you, but I'm the same in some ways. For example, I have religious friends who would tell me they've had mystical experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What am I going to do? Say, no, dude, you didn't have that experience. Of course, I'm not going to say that. Their experience is real. It's their experience. Their experience yeah. of God is real for them. That's their experience. Yeah. I'm not going to like tell them they're wrong or try to diminish their faith. And I expect similar um, respect from them and generally receive it. Hmm. Have you had uh, any or many experiences in regards to what we like to focus on on this program quite often, and I usually mention this at the beginning of our broadcast, uh, the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s, where we encourage people to go within, to listen to that still, small voice, to find that calm, peaceful, quiet place, to rejuvenate, to relax, to get inspiration, encouragement, and guidance, and so forth. So I'm curious about what I will put in this context, your inner life. Now, I understand where you're coming from, but there has to be a time when you get these promptings, this gut feeling, some would say, and so forth. I do believe in those kinds of experiences. I do believe in meaning, seeking meaning, making meaning. I call on my fellow secular community and the things I write and the things I say in talks to find inspiration, to find purposes and causes greater than ourselves. The shtick I have for it is that I often say that life is so much more than me here and now. Mm -hmm. It's about extending ourselves to something greater. And uh, for me, that's often experiences in mountains. I know it's not an original <laughs> observation, but for me, it is a spiritual experience to be in the mountains. I've been a mountain climber. I've backpacked a lot in the West. I find that very meaningful. But it doesn't have to be that spectacular. For me, it's really important to be outside. I'll give you an anecdote, Richard. Um, during the election, I was really stressed out. And um, I found so much refuge in going to the woods not far from here, a park called East Rock Park which is beautiful, even though it's in a city environment. It's surprisingly large and rocky and there's cliffs and beautiful trees. And I'd go for walks and runs out there pretty much every day. This was um, in October and November, we had beautiful fall colors. And that was so restorative for me. If you follow political news really closely, which I do, it can be really debilitating to your spirit because there's so much bad behavior and there's so much stupid rhetoric and people tearing each other down people lying or distorting the truth. 
people treating each other really badly. And it starts to really tear at me and make me feel really grim about human existence, the state of the world. And I was going through a lot of that in the fall. And being in the woods was so restorative because here's something that's just good. And it's wild. It hasn't been built by anybody. It's been preserved by people, yes, which is really important to acknowledge. And that was an experience of good that mattered so much to me. Other people probably have analogous experiences. And you can, like, extrapolate a lot from what I just said about that. We need to get out of the day-to-day anger and rush and stress and tap into something different and, to me, something that relates to nature. And right there, you got a pretty good look at the kind of spirituality I pursue. Hmm. I was just looking at your website, and um, the title of a documentary that you were a part of just hit me uh, in just the right way. And the title of this documentary, folks, uh, you're going to want to check this out. It's on National Public Radio, NPR. Lord, save us from your followers. (laughs) I am so glad you brought that up. It's been a while since that um, came out, Richard. The guy who made that film is named uh, Dan Merchant. And he's an amazing guy. And um, I was so impressed by that film and so delighted that I got to be part of it. I think you and your listeners get the idea when they hear that title. They should know that the point of the book is not to run down Christians. The guy who made the film is a Christian. Yeah. But the the point of it is to um, show ways in which the behavior of Christians was going counter to the gospel and the way of Jesus and causing unnecessary strife in our public life in this country. And the film ends with a very uplifting call for people to follow the way of Jesus. Yeah. I don't think, I don't know this. I would say I would be one of those things. I believe again, from an agnostic perspective <clears throat> that Jesus ever intended people to follow him, the person, the personality of uh, his me- his message was what they were supposed to follow, not make him a deity, uh, not anthropomorphizing him in spite of the fact that. And again, I've done some research on this and there are no records. There are no records from that time period uh, verifying the existence thereof of Jesus, uh, the son of Mary and Joseph from uh, from Bethlehem. And the only thing what, that um, I'm aware of in that regard is a very, very, very brief mention by the historian Josephus yes. of that time. And it says, correct me if I'm wrong, or maybe the listeners can somehow correct me. Sure. But I think it just mentions that he, this guy, Jesus, was crucified. Right. And I find that interesting because I remember the, 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 the uh, we'll call it the, <laughs> the uh, um, story, the Christmas story where the whole reason why they were going to Bethlehem in the first place was for what you and I just experienced last year, the census, where Mm. we were supposed to be counted. However, he was never counted because they had to escape because, what was it, Uh, I want to say Herod found out and said, okay, go kill every kid under the age of two. And so be it. And so they they, uh, dropped their rocks and split as it were. Uh, I find that interesting 
uh, but what really struck me some years ago when I was working for a Christian station was an author who uh, wrote a book that I'll summarize by basically saying his discoveries, he felt that the Christian church, Christendom, had been uh, sold a, a bill of goods or taken on a primrose path. And his discoveries and his research into both uh, into the Bible using a Strong's Concordance, if you will, and other, a few other sources, was that the Christian life was not an external life. It was internal. And um, that many of the things that, uh, as a matter of fact, I have an interview coming up with uh, someone who wants to talk about the second coming. And he says in his research, nowhere in the Bible, New Testament, does it say Jesus is going to return a second time. It doesn't say how many times. And as he researched it, he says he could come back over and over again in your life, within you. And I'm thinking, wow, I think that would be fantastic. Uh, quite honestly, the old joke is that if Jesus were to come back today in the physical, nobody would recognize him. Not yeah, even his followers. Him. Yeah. yeah, the Christians might not accept him. Yeah, because of the way Christianity oh. has been, oh, I'll just use the term changed, okay? I'll be kind and say changed. Well, that was very diplomatic when you <laughs> said change. You could have said something more negative, right? Uh, well, I could have, um, but by the same token, I, I don't want to drive a, a wedge here. I don't want to be critical in that respect. Uh, it's not, the, 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 the doctrine and dogma may not be what I believe or follow, but if it serves you, fine, follow it. If it doesn't serve you anymore, move on to the next level, move on to the next thing. Someone told me when I said, um, you know, that I was on my search, and this was like when I was 25, 26, 27 years of age working for Christian Station. And they said, oh, well, once you find Jesus, your search is over. And I said, well, actually, no. Once I find Jesus, my search has just begun. And I've been reading the, great, great, the ancient wisdom teachings. I'm curious about your exposure to some of the other writings of other philosophies down through history. I'm certainly not a scholar of those things. I do read a lot about what's happening with religion mm -hmm. and sometimes religious history, but my real expertise is on what's going on with religion in the public square, mm -hmm. in public life. Another way to put it is that I really focus on what's happening at the intersection of religion, culture, and politics. So if you're doing that, you have to go back and read parts of the Bible. You have to get your citation squared away. You'll see references to theologians and philosophers of the past, and you need to catch up on those. But I'm not going to claim that I'm a deep expert. Um, on any of those things. But you've exposed yourself to them. I have. Be it the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita. I continually, Gita, I continually um, yeah. explore them as I prepare to write books and columns yeah. and live my life. And, of course, I'm, I'm still studying and researching, too. I, I would love to learn more about it. I would almost want to sit down with an imam and learn the Quran or learn more of the basics of it. Uh, what little I've I been do. Uh, learning more about Stoicism uh, just in recent months. Yeah. Uh, Zoroastrianism. Okay. Uh, and the list goes on. I mean, there are just so many uh, major and minor philosophies. Uh, and uh, you would obviously, uh, well, I don't want to say obviously, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Uh, would you agree that there are extremists in every philosophy that puts themselves and others shall we use the term in harm's way in many instances? And I find it fascinating when people scream persecution. I view that in this way. 
They're standing on the railroad tracks and a train is coming and they're complaining that the train is coming. That to me is when you choose to take on a particular philosophy, whether it be religious or, or political or otherwise, I don't, it's just like get off the train tracks. You can believe whatever you want, but don't blame the train for hitting you. It's not the well, train's fault. Sometimes they try to uh, play on this sense of persecution to um, get somewhere with it, you know? To justify their philosophy. Well, and politically, it's been a very potent tool in this day and age. As you no doubt know, white evangelicalism has a great deal of political power, political power beyond their numbers Mm -hmm. in the culture. And one tactic they've used is that they're being persecuted. And when politicians appeal to that, they can get a lot of people motivated to become active in politics and to vote and to support particular candidates. It's really a potent means of getting people organized and mobilized and fired up. But it can be very wrong, too, because if you're walking through life with a sense of persecution and grievance, that can easily morph into anger and all sorts of horrible things can flow from that. Well, and we can see in just the last five years, uh, the 2016 campaign, presidential campaign, I have dubbed the campaign of victimhood because that's what it was. It's somebody else's fault that we have the problems we have. Now, would, would I agree that this country has problems? Sure, absolutely. But it ain't nobody else's fault but our own. Because yeah, scapegoating we, isn't very productive. Yeah. But sadly, history shows numerous and horrible examples of scapegoating mm-hmm. being yeah. used for major political power plays that have changed the course of history, usually for the ill. It is is very unfortunate in many in, in instances uh, down through history. Uh, then we've also seen the the instances. I'm sure you've uh, looked into the uh, <clears throat> the the periods. Uh, of of great, um, I'm not sure what I want to use here, upheaval, but also restraint on the part of the uh, Catholic Church, uh, for example, uh, in uh, in the period of the Inquisition, you know, and that if you didn't toe the line, uh, what was it, uh, Galileo, who um, I'd heard it said that he did not renounce his position on the fact that the earth wasn't the center of the universe right up to his death. Uh, I seem to recall hearing that he's I'm not, I'm not no because based upon my information what I've researched the truth is da 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 and then that was that uh, I guess Joan of Arc was kind of the same way you know which I th- I find I don't know the I've seen the movies okay I haven't read a Let's lot. Just put it this way those who were at odds with the official church in certain periods of history were in a lot of trouble and they were going to pay a severe price yeah. But that does it, not reflect well on on the church or any other religion when it does that right. kind of thing. But isn't it true, too, that uh, these individuals were made martyrs of sorts and the and you can kill a person, but you can't kill an idea? I love that you said that. I've um, often thought that and I find that um, inspiring. And um, that's really true of philanthropic love, which is a philosophical principle that matters a lot to me. And you probably noticed I said philanthropic love. I'm not talking about romantic love or affection, Mm -hmm. but like the public ethic. Yeah. And hope is the same thing. And these things, no matter what happens on the ground, 
are still alive and they're still resilient because they're ideas and they continue. And in my Secular Jesus Follower book, I apply that really to Jesus in a way, because obviously, if you believe the histories, <laughs> Jesus was crucified and his life as a human being ended. But even though um, I don't subscribe to traditional Christian doctrine or supernatural doc doctrine, really, I believe that in a very real way, Jesus lives on the ethic of Jesus, the idea of love, philanthropic love, these um, really inspiring ways of living that he modeled. Those things have continued against all odds. And despite horrible things happening in the world, as well as wonderful things happening in history, mm. they can't be killed. They can't be finally defeated. Love goes on. Yeah. Now, again, one of those things that I believe, again, I'll take it from that agnostic position, that we are immortal, not the physical body, mind you, but that which animates. And I don't know what that is, but I do remember a documentary I was watching once where they got the permission from this gentleman who was a um, terminal and they they had him on a large scale, like in a morgue. And he was still alive. And he allowed them to do this. And so they were they were checking his weight right up to and then after his his last breath. And the weight changed following his death. Like like maybe a quarter maybe a quarter of a pound. Wow. What, and what so the, what the heck left? What you know? I think you said you're not sure what that thing is, but where do you think it goes or what does it do? What happens? Good question. Now, there is a there is a uh, a, a program through the Newton Institute. Uh, I believe it's John. Uh, John Newton wrote several books on what's called LBL, Life Between Lives. Mm -hmm. And uh, they take you through a conscious hypnosis session. You're fully conscious of what's going on. You are not led the facilitator asks you, what are you experiencing? What are you seeing? What are you smelling? What are you tasting? What are you feeling? What are you hearing? All right. Not putting words in your mouth, asking you to describe what's happening. I went through one of those programs. I went through one of those sessions. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, locally, we have a practitioner here in, uh, in Santa Barbara. And, um, what was so fascinating was he took me back to my past life, my, the one right before this one. And I was living in the pioneer days, had a farm and a big barn and all this kind of stuff. And the farm and the, uh, the, the, the field of crops and the barn burned to the ground. Don't know how it started. Doesn't matter. But I also had a, I had a cabin up in the woods, up in the mountains. So I went up to the cabin. <clears throat> I'm living up there for, I don't know how long. Then one day, I walk outside the door, close the door. I sit down in the chair, and I don't know why this happens. My, my accent comes in here. Well, it's not mine. I take on this accent. I sit down in the chair. I tilt, put my feet up on the rail. I put my hat, hat back, and I go, man, it's been a good life. And I left. I just left. I left the body. And then I started going through this process, and as described in Newton's books, where some people will stay here earthbound for a period of time, just kind of to see what's happened, see what's going on with the relatives, you know, loved ones. Then they'll leave. There'll be a period of rest. How long? I don't know. 
because uh, in that world, there is no time. Then there's the time of reconnecting with what's called your cluster. And that is the people that you have associated with throughout lifetimes. Then there's a period of review. Remember the uh, movie with Albert Brooks and Meryl Streep um, about reviewing one's life after they've died? And she is having the greatest time eating whatever she wants, not gaining weight and all this kind of stuff. Albert is just going nuts because he is so afraid of being judged and then condemned to hell and all this kind of stuff. He doesn't understand what the review is yet. Anyway, you go through your, you go through your life review. And then there's a period of learning, of education, where they are not only teaching you new things, but also encouraging you to go back. Take what you've learned, go into the next lifetime, and share that with humanity. And I found all of that extremely compelling. I would mm. have to say that you have probably, and this is just a guess on my part, uh, that you have probably lived similar uh, kinds of past lives where you have been entrenched in different philosophies, deeply and in that life between lives period, you said, you know what, I don't want to do that again. I want to help people. I'm going to come from a different perspective. And as you've shared, you come from a secular perspective of following Jesus and probably better term to following his message, not so much him, you know, the personage. Yep, and his, and his, and his example. And his example. Yep, which I think is powerful. Um, sometimes I get challenged about um, my tendency to either ignore or translate the religious part of the Jesus story and the religious things that Jesus said and did. And um, to me, that's not surprising. I mean, it says right on the cover of the book that I'm a secular Jesus follower, mm -hmm. which means not religious in most contexts. And so if I, I get challenged that way, I say, well, of course, I mean, I've already established I'm not religious. And so the religious parts of the story don't resonate with me, but there's so much else there that does resonate with me. And as I observe the world, I find to be incredibly, just like mind-blowingly relevant, applicable to so much of what we struggle with as human beings in the Western world in 2021. It's amazing to me that that's true. These human struggles look so similar, age to age, generation to generation. And so that's another part of why I'm so astounded by the figure of Jesus in that story and trying to incorporate that way of life into my own. But you were talking about um, other lives, and I think this author named Newton, and I don't know anything about that. And um, I generally have the approach that this life is all that we have or all that we know for sure that we have, and that it, it's probably wise to live as though this is all we have. Mm -hmm. I'm really influenced by, speaking of philosophers, how about a present day philosopher? I'm really influenced by a book called This Life by a Yale philosopher, a professor named Martin Hagland. And he's an atheist and he talks about this life being the only life that we have. And there's no eternity in his view there's no afterlife it's this life and that is what makes life meaningful 
That's what gives life urgency. That's what creates meaning. That's what matters. And um, it's not a totally grim philosophy, though. He believes in creating a better world. And um, you can follow that philosophy and still see the ways that we do live on. Not like in um, a supernatural sense, but in some of the following ways. We live on in um, the memory of our loved ones and other people we've had in our life. We live on through the work we did that outlasts us. And that's where I feel fortunate about doing writing. It's not like I'm a best-selling author or a famous writer, but I trust that some of my writings will live on for a while. And that's meaningful to me. And also the, um, the projects that we undertake, the things we're part of that are bigger than us, those things will go on. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. And that's, um, that's really important. I don't feel like um, secular people are really missing out, you know. So um, a super religious person who believes in heaven could say to me, in fact, they have said to me, Richard, Tom, I just really feel sorry for you that you don't have that joy and assurance that comes from knowing <laughs> that you'll go to heaven. And um, I'm sort of like, thanks, but I, I have plenty in my <laughs> secular meaning making and the things that I'm aware of and the ways that I know that I and other people will live on. Mm. And that's very meaningful to me. And if I practice it right and stick to my principles, that's a very satisfactory life and a path to joy and meaning. Yeah. Now, as an American, you are quite familiar with the inalienable rights. And among them are life. You've got life. You're living it. You've got liberty. I'm not sure what that means, but you've got it anyway. And happiness. Oh, I'm sorry that you, you can pursue happiness. Yeah, they're not guaranteeing that you'll have it. Is they're Cret- just saying you can pursue it. Is Tom Crettenmaker happy? Um, I'm going to dodge because my whole <laughs> philosophy is not to chase happiness. No, seriously, do you want to hear? Uh, I'm not like trying to get off the hook, but you just set up one of my favorite little rants. So thanks. You're welcome. Um, I think it was in Bob Dylan's memoir, but maybe someplace else. I read um, a snippet of an interview where he was asked if he was happy and he said he wasn't interested in being happy. He just wanted to create great music and write great songs. And that really speaks to me. I mean, I think I felt that way even before I came across that anecdote, but that's sort of how I am. And I find that whenever I like sort of consciously pursue happy, it's elusive and I get frustrated because I don't feel it, or maybe I don't know what it feels like. And so, at least for me, and I don't begrudge anybody else being happy, right. finding happiness, <clears throat> but for me, it makes a lot more sense to do things that are meaningful, to live my life the right way, as I define it, to try to summon my best self and best motives, to really identify my values and to live up to them, and to extend myself to other people and purposes beyond myself to do the things that I think are a good way to live according to all of the thinking I've done and all the studying and writing I've done to try to live that way. And if that makes me happy, so be it. But I see happiness not as like the thing you do, but like some ultimate byproduct or unintended payoff that comes to you. And other people will have different views. Um, I do know that happiness is just like such a big thing in the culture right now. 
Have you noticed that? Just last night I was watching a show with my wife and several commercials in a row had happy or happiness in their tagline. It seems like the culture is just obsessed with happy. And that's not necessarily bad. I mean, I'm sure you'd agree with me that if happy is defined as getting all of the consumer products or services you want, then it's BS. And that's really a futile life. Mm. But there are definitions of happiness that are really robust and that are other oriented. I mean, there's a big um, happiness project at Yale and there's a, there's a class and there's a whole curriculum around it. And it teaches that giving to others is ultimately what makes you happy. It's not about just getting things for yourself. So that's another way. I don't begrudge people happiness or scoff at happiness, especially when I know that there's a robust, thoughtful, philosophical underpinning to it. Mm. Uh, you've mentioned a couple things here, uh, but one of them has you use the word translation. I want to dive into that here in a minute. But first, <clears throat> I want to address this thing on happiness. And you've raised a very interesting perspective that I hadn't thought of. And that's one of the things I love about this show is, is the interplay, the interaction, and uh, the uh, enlightenment that comes through these conversations. I, you know, there are those who are extremely cynical today about our government. In spite of the fact that they'll sit there and they'll go, yes, but we're, you know, uh, founded on great documents, okay. And I interviewed a gentleman not long ago who talked about uh, how we need a new, uh, what was it, the phrase, I'm trying to remember the title of the book, having to do with we need a, a new reasonable form of government. So my first question out of the box was, so when was the last time we had a reasonable form of government? <laughs> to which he said, <clears throat> I wasn't entirely surprised because it makes perfect sense, about three minutes after the ink dried on the Constitution signatures. Uh, because at that point, now everybody was making sure that they uh, jockeyed for position so that their ox didn't get gored. But think about this, life and liberty. Now, bear in mind, there are other inalienable rights that aren't mentioned, because it says among these are. But life and liberty are pretty, pretty clear, right? You have well, life. Well, what do you mean by liberty? I well, mean, that that's that that is a good question. That, that continues that continues to confuse people, sure, and confound people right to this day. Yeah. So we could have a whole conversation about that, Richard. We but could I would just put a put a pin in that. Put, yeah, yeah. We'll liberty is often is Vili, often poorly Vili, understood, and people have very different ideas about what it means. Yes. But okay, I'm with you. Keep going. All right, we'll we'll come back to that one. Okay. Uh, and the third one, of course, is the pursuit of happiness. Now, think about this. If you're the, the cynical type, all right, not the critical thinker, but the cynical type, uh, I have the inalienable right to pursue happiness. Well, if you are keeping yourself occupied with pursuing happiness, then the powers that be can basically do pretty much whatever they want because you're pursuing happiness. You don't care about what the government's doing, right? So maybe that is one of those, uh, uh, you know, and, and again, that's the cynical perspective. The, they say the conspiracy theorist uh, perspective, but it still ties into what you're talking about. Uh, why do I need to? What is it that, that I really need to pursue happiness for? I feel good. I'm healthy. 
Uh, I love what I do. I'm satisfied. Now, some might say, well, then you're happy. Well, okay, uh, that's your definition. It's kind of like that Chinese uh, proverb about uh, the farmer and his son, uh, you know, and things happen. And the neighbor comes over to ask each day how, how, what's going on. And he would tell him. And he said, oh, that's, that's too bad. Oh, that's great. And the father would always respond. The farmer would always respond. Well, who's to say what's good or bad? So in terms of being happy, who's to say if that's what happiness is. All I know is you're feeling good about what you're doing. You're feeling good about your life. I'm feeling the same about mine. I feel good about yours too, but m- mostly mine. Uh, <laughs> well, and um, I have to wonder if that, that could be considered to be an attempt to distract us. Oh, for sure. You and see? to me, that's not real happiness. That's a very thin, selfish Exactly. exactly. As we talked about a couple times, I have this idea of Jesus that infects me. And the thing that has always struck me the most about Jesus is the teaching about what we do to the least of these is how we are ultimately judged. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty profound. And that's very much against a certain powerful grain or tendency Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in our culture. Let's think about that for a minute. Sure. And so depending (laughs) on how much uh, privilege or status you have, there are people you could mistreat or ignore and you would get away with it, right? And that's what's so confounding and fascinating and important about Jesus. Like the ultimate test of my character is how I treat and think about and regard those I could most easily mistreat and get away with it. And so pursuit of happiness, to me, that's always going to very much include and require my care for what's going on around me. And in a very real way, how can I be happy if there's suffering all around me? I don't think I can. You know, I find it very fascinating uh, to have this conversation because it leads me into uh, a couple of things here. Number one is a couple of the uh, writers, the philosophers uh, of uh, maybe a few centuries back and and forward and so forth, where we are today. Teilhard de Chardin is one. And then the other, and these gentlemen were introduced to me in a program I went through, and the other is René uh, de Chardin, Descartes. Mm-hmm. René Descartes. And um, they were introduced to me uh, through a program called Omega and Delta Vector. It was a personal growth program, one of those intensives you go through, uh, similar to maybe Astro Life Spring, but it was free. Uh, you, you, you go if you want to go. You don't have to go, um, you know, and you participate. Hopefully you'll participate fully, and you learn about yourself. What would you say? How does self-knowledge play into your, uh, your, I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to use the phrase, but I'm going to use it anyway. Your spiritual life. <laughs> I think it's really important. It's about being conscious, like really being aware of what's going on. Most people would agree that we should live an intentional life where we're actually trying to be in charge of our life Mm -hmm. rather than just being tossed on the waves. There's so much complexity when it comes to what's happening inside our psyches and our brains. And there are so many 
things that we're being bombarded with from the culture in terms of different messages and influences. It would be so easy just to go with the wind or the current to be tossed by the waves and just sort of drift into whatever, wherever the culture pushes you. I think that would be a wasted life. Hmm. I think we should really examine our lives and ourselves and be aware of what's driving us. That gives us a lot more power for sure. I mean, one thing that I'm conscious of lately is tendency to eat, overeat certain things. And then I feel guilty and lousy about it afterwards. And um, I'm trying to be more aware of that impulse. Like, what is it that drives me to do it in the moment? What if I had conscious knowledge of that? If I was able to take a minute to think about the way it would make me feel like an hour down the road, and then I could live more intentionally and make decisions rather than just being like driven by impulses. Well, that's a pretty minor example. I mean, most people probably have similar things, but what about like, the main reason for your life. I really feel like in our culture today, if we're not being intentional and thoughtful, we could easily drift into like consumerism or um, we could decide that like certain political movements are gonna be our ultimate meaning. Mm -hmm. Or maybe we get sucked into like conspiracy theories and we get all of our meaning from those things. It'd be easy to be sucked into any number of things. Mm -hmm. But, um. I think it's important to really understand what matters to us, identify our values, and then ask ourselves what we're going to be about. What do we really want and what is really worth wanting? Not just being governed by non-examined, unexamined impulses that we have or influences from the culture. I think a good phrase would be that you need to vet your own beliefs and vet them very, very carefully because and, they are and going vet your motives. I mean, how often yeah. do we find ourselves thinking, you know what, I'm going to do action A. I'm going to take this course of action because it seems like the right thing. And then maybe a day later before you've done it, you start coming to your senses and you think, what is my motive? Am I doing this for a good reason? Or maybe I'm trying to like get even with somebody. Maybe I'm trying to manipulate them or make them feel guilty. Like, how does this course of action and this motive really stack up with the values that I've identified as animating my life? Mm -hmm. And then you may discover it's like the worst possible thing to do. Or maybe you discover it really is a good course of action. And now you're going to enter it with full confidence that it's examined and that it's true to yourself. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. That's vetting, right? I like that vetting term in this in this context. It's and I think it's extremely important because people aren't doing that today. They are just accepting what they're being given. They're being fed. I don't want to say force fed, mind you, but fed. But they're not questioning it. And you know, it's like uh, someone will say something of a, a certain level of a, of of, a, of certainty. And you might say, well, well, where did you hear that or where did you read that? Well, I read it here. Okay, have you read it anyplace else? No, I just read it here. I trust this particular source. I said, no, that's not good enough. You have to seek out and find the information from other sources that corroborates your position from the first source that you took it from. Now, here's what's interesting. I heard an interesting story. 
I didn't really want to bring this up in the program because uh, I didn't want to necessarily uh, put a timestamp on this. But uh, as of our conversation, there was uh, information uh, regarding uh, some new rules regarding <clears throat> the pandemic and how we should uh, wear masks or social distance or wash hands, etc. And one of the comments that was made in this news story was that we are still learning about this virus. We do not have all the information. And so some of the rules, some of the new suggestions or guidelines, that's a better word, guidelines, some of the new guidelines uh, we're, we're putting out because of some new information, some new studies that have been done. Now, because there are new guidelines that may or may not contradict old guidelines, the fact of the matter is we don't have all the answers. And I think that's one of the, the positions that people do not are not willing to take today. I say, I, and I shared this with my sister many years ago when she challenged me on my salvation. I said, my beliefs of yesterday are not my beliefs of today are not my beliefs of tomorrow because I'm still alive. I'm still experiencing. I'm still, I'm still alive. reading. That's a good line. All right. All those things. Right. Well, science is the same way. Now, some might say, but but they were so certain a month ago, six months ago, a year ago. No, they weren't. They were giving you information based upon what they knew at the time. It's like it's the same to me as Pluto. Today, Pluto is a planet. And the next day, Pluto is not a planet. Well, wait a minute. But I grew up knowing Pluto was a planet. Well, but we have new information based upon the criterion for determining what a planet is. Pluto ain't it. Okay, uh, you know, I don't like it. Uh, it's like uh, the Bob, which is the uh, uh, place where the uh, uh, baseball team, the Arizona Diamondbacks play. It's always going to be the Bob to me. Bank One Ballpark. I don't care who else is funding it. Uh, it's still the Bob to me. But it has another name. So this is part of the problem we have. And this kind of goes back to uh, uh, also something you said earlier, uh, what we were talking about earlier about the... Uh, um, uh, about uh, uh, the Inquisition period of time, you know, that type of thing. I read an article not long ago that basically was saying that documents have been found that have been show that have shown that there was a pro and anti-Christian propaganda war going on. And I think the fourth or fifth century, so it actually went on for a couple of three centuries. And, uh, well, we know who won that war. Christianity won the war. Because, look, now it's, quote-unquote, been around for over 2,000 years. Well, not actually, a particular version of Christianity uh, prevailed. There you, there you go. Particular because version. Because there, there were competing religions, but also competing Christianities right. and competing ideas about the identity of Jesus. Yeah. But propaganda wars have been going on. There were very fierce battles, too, over who Jesus was. Yeah. Like, all God, all man. Yeah. Some combination. Yeah. Well, but uh, the, the point being that there have always been these information slash disinformation campaigns down through history and battles for the truth and battles for the truth and that's why vetting your beliefs is so important um you know so it's and being to open me, to revising it too and that's one good thing about um about science yeah As you were pointing out new information comes new understandings yeah. appear but and see, science is able to revise yeah. what it is said because it never at least when it's being true science it never says this is 1,000% true and the final word. Yeah. yeah. Science is always evolving. 
Um, I hear really brutal critiques of um, journalism and media. Yeah. Like, oh, you can't trust anything in the New York Times or USA Today because they're biased. And there may be some biases, but it's nothing like what these critics would say. And the good thing about real newspapers is that if it's discovered that there was an error, they'll correct it. Right. And they'll put an addendum to the uh, at the bottom of the article saying a previous version of this article incorrectly spelled Richard Dugan's name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It'll own up to mistakes and correct them. At yeah. least that's what they're supposed to do. Right. Right. And this is how it should be. I mean, these are human enterprises. Not everything is going to be perfect. And we should update the truth as we learn it. And we should correct errors as they come to our attention. And this is how we should live as people, too. Mm. I could have like a really dumb idea. I may even, I probably uttered a few in this conversation. And then in the time that comes, I'll probably find something out that makes me realize that I had a wrong understanding. And yeah. then if I'm being true to my philosophy, I'll update that understanding and change my tune yeah. and maybe even fess up to ways that I was wrong. I was interviewing a gentleman. We were talking about our different perspectives on things. He says, well, you know, okay, that's nice, Richard, but let me give you my perspective. And I listened very intently to what he had to say, which was not exactly counter, but it was certainly different from what I was thinking at the time. And I thought about it for a brief second, and I I realized that, you know, his perspective actually makes a lot more sense. So I said to him, I says, well, there goes another one of my grass huts up in flames. (laughs) And I'm well, willing to set fire to all of them. Of humor, but. I'm willing to set fire to all of them because uh, there was a saying that was given to me when I was 21, when I thought I knew, as, as the saying goes, I knew everything, right? Oh, yeah. It is better to begin in doubt and end in certainty than begin in certainty and end in doubt. Mm, that's really deep. So um, I'm glad you have a sense of humor, but um, for many people, including for me, it can be painful to discover that we've been wrong about something that's really important to us. Yeah. It could be embarrassing. Um, it could be painful in all sorts of ways. But um, if I'm being my best self and if I'm living up to my principles and values, mm-hmm. I want to learn. Yes. And if I'm wrong about something, the sooner I find out, the better. And the sooner I update my view of the world, the better. And so um, I have, to, uh, I have to, my, to challenge myself to be that way. But, man, defensiveness is a real and present danger in it. It can get me too. Yeah. And uh, if people um, are confronted with alternative truths, they go pretty deep. There's a tendency to fight and to get angry. And yeah, it's yeah. a very human tendency. It's not easy to overcome that. And I think, too, that the, there's always the, the fight for the truth, especially when it comes to historical facts. Uh, there was an event we term it the Holocaust there was an event, we call it Three Mile Island or, or Chernobyl. These events are factual. You can't say they didn't exist. There was also an event called the Insurrection. I'd like to say it took place in the 17 or 1800s, but sadly it took place here in the 21st century. And that's what it was. To call it a group of tourists, how many tourists do you know go through and break out windows and crush, uh, crush people uh, between door frames? Yeah, the, I, saw I mean, that those are not the kind of tourists and, um, I want. My eye rolling, my eye rolling was so severe that uh, I practically had an eye injury. <laughs> but, but that's part of the problem about yeah. what's happening today. Yeah. I mean, we're all entitled to have our opinions and our takes on subjective truth. But objective facts are what they are. 
and you mm-hmm. can't make them up. Yeah, yeah, those absolutely. Facts, those facts have this pesky habit of continuing to exist and continuing to be true, no matter what you or I or somebody else says. That is true. And and it's it's something that we need to take a look at and realize with science as well as with, again, I'll use the term religion, um, <laughs> we're finding new stuff all the time. And so to, uh, again, I will repeat this, and that is, if it serves you today, that's fine. But you're still alive. As I said before to my sister, I'm still alive. I'm still learning, growing, experiencing, etc. So are you who are listening and watching this program. And you may come across something tomorrow that could change your whole world. I mean, what if, in fact... And maybe you do or do not believe this. What if, in fact, there are, there is life out in the universe? And no, um, no we're not going to use God as the example, okay? I'm talking about other physical, material mortals who live on other planets, who knows, uh, interstellarly distant from us. They are not our enemies because if they were, it would already be over. Uh, because if they can travel, travel uh, galactically, then they have the means to do whatever they want with us and to us. I even think of those stories of people who have been abducted, you know, like in the middle of the night, and then they wake up the next morning and they have no memories, but they have these different marks or this or that or the other. Did you have any choice? Were you able to stop them from taking you? No. So they have the technology, okay? And again, I'm not saying that all of these stories are true, Tom. All I'm saying is, that we have to, we've got to open up our minds a little bit more. And you have done that for us here on the program, and I really do appreciate that. I know we're very tight on time here. Tom Krattenmaker is my guest, and TomKrattenmaker.com will be linked to your website. I do want to ask you three final questions, if I may, before we wrap this up. They're, they're real brief. I ask all of my guests these questions. And, and again, I thank you for giving us so much time here on the program. And we're going to have you back to talk more about these things, because well, that would be fun. Uh, this, is, this is a lot of fun, and I really enjoy this, and, and and I'm learning a lot as well. Uh, but I want to remind our listeners and viewers that you are listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., Wednesdays with a special edition of Tell Me Your Story at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com with podcasts at SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and other locations, as well as on YouTube where you can subscribe. And as of our conversation, conversation i have a massive 24 subscribers which hey i'll take them and if you'd like to subscribe there it is go to the youtube channel richard dugan tell me your story just look for the guy with the hat as well as on soundcloud uh tell me your story richard dugan and uh, also a reminder that if you'd like to support this broadcast financially and you like what we're talking about and some of the ideas that we bring to uh, the forefront and you'd like to be a part of this financially and energetically in that regard, we do greatly appreciate it. That's why we have a PayPal and Patreon account for your security as well as ours. And please participate in 2020, the decade of perfect vision where you go within, spend time. Um, just listening to that still small voice, your gut, if you will, if you want to put it that way, and just stay calm, peaceful, find that space where you can just rejuvenate and re-energize, and uh, it's it's just really great to, to do that. And then you'll never have to be the one standing on the railroad tracks with the train heading towards you, okay? Can I just still... chime in for a second? Yes. That spiel, you said a lot, 
very fast and flawlessly. Hats off to you. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, you know, it's 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 fascinating to me how uh, if you listen to that still small voice, and Tom, uh, you might agree with this, I don't know, but uh, I do not believe that the still small voice will ever put you in harm's way. It may challenge you. Okay, it, it has me where it's asked me to do something. And I'm going, no, 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 that's counter to what I normally do, the normal protocol. And mm -hmm. I thought and thought and thought and thought and thought, and I thought, okay, all right, I'll do it. Had I not followed that prompting, things would have been a whole lot worse. Interesting. So that's something that, that I have learned. So with all of that, as you have stated, flawlessly said, I'm going to ask you three final questions. Uh, you may have addressed them during the interview, but I like to ask them straight up at the end of the program. Number one, who is Tom Crattenmaker? Tom Crattenmaker is a human being, a citizen, husband and father, a writer, thinker, and author, and secular Jesus follower. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now? I want to help society become better informed, more thoughtful, and in particular, I want to help motivate the secular community, of which I am part, to pursue meaning and develop community. Oh, I like that. And finally, what is your life's purpose? To expand knowledge, goodness, and compassion, and philanthropic love. TomCrattenmaker.com is the website. We encourage you to go there as well. USA uh, columnist, contributor to the USA, as well as the communications director at Yale School of Divinity. And uh, again, we thank you so much for joining us here on the program. Thanks, Richard, and thanks for the work you're doing. And we thank you for listening and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to lol.